Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 257, Political Accommodation Within the Dane Law. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Chrissy, Ian, and John for signing up already. Things in Britain are changing rapidly. In Scotland, the McAlpin dynasty is rising, and with it, comes the merging of the Scottish and Pictish cultures. A similar blending is happening in the Anglo-Saxon regions. As we've seen in the last few episodes, cities are changing, economies are emerging, and the sudden appearance of the new place names, some of which are Danish and others are a blend of Danish and Old English, well, those tell us that cultures are changing too. And all of this, the changing approach to land, the movement towards burrs, the reoccupation of Lindenburg, the flourishing of trade, these things are all bringing about an enormous shift in the way life is being lived on the island. And that, in turn, is having an impact upon politics. So if you're a big fan of the Alfred series, if you love kings and queens and battles and all that sort of stuff, the engine that drives much of what's been happening and what will continue to happen are the things that we've been talking about recently. This isn't the Lord of the Rings. War doesn't happen just because Sauron is a dick. Armies aren't mobilized just because Saruman has possessed someone in Rohan. Dark Ages Britain was a real place, and the events that took place there have real causes. These changes to land, economics, culture, and everything else help inform us about why the armies are marching, and why policies are being enacted and why dynasties are clashing. But the battles and the treaties and the major infrastructure projects, that's all big politics. The reason why we spoke about place names is because it's one of our windows into small politics, subtle politics, the sort of political moves that won't make it into something like the Chronicle, but shape the day-to-day lives of the British people just as much, if not more so, than those marching armies. When we see the Danish place names appear, it tells us something. And when we see Grimston hybrids appear, that confirms it. This is all evidence of political accommodation. And we've encountered this process before in our story. The tale of the occupation and development of Orkney, the eventual peace and subsequent treaties with Guthrum, Mercia's interactions with Halfdan, well over half of the actions taken by Alfred, There are all sorts of examples where we can see the local nobility working to stabilize relations with the Danes through, you guessed it, political accommodation. And actually, we've seen this sort of thing prior to the coming of the Danes. The stories of Edwin, the sons of Athelfrith, the short-lived sons of Ida, the Mercian supremacy, the aftermath of Penda's wars, all that kind of stuff. History is replete with tales of leaders seeking political accommodation with outside forces, and even inside forces. Sometimes this occurs as the result of war. Sometimes it's out of fear. Other times we've seen them happen for economic or dynastic reasons. And sometimes it's just because nobles often tend to stick together, at least until they don't. So today, we're going to shed some light on the incredibly murky world of the Anglo-Scandinavian territories of the early 10th century. Even though we have very few records to go on, we're going to get a sense of what was happening behind that veil. And we're going to do that by looking at little signposts, little hints in the material record. 
And we're going to see that much like how the Anglo-Saxon migration led to a cultural shift, and it was a shift that didn't require a mythological massacre of the locals, the North was having a similar shift. And we're going to see a new culture develop in that region. And it's one that's so durable that you can still see the cultural lines between the North and the South about a thousand years later. And that change didn't require a butchering of the local population. All it needed was political accommodation. Now, the first sign of this accommodation is something that we've already talked about. The famed treaty between Alfred and Guthrum. That's what historians usually point to as the establishment of Danelaw though the term Danelaw wouldn't appear in the written record until much later. That treaty, as well as the things that followed, are useful for us because it provides a roadmap of how later events may have played out farther into the Scandinavian-dominated regions. The treaty itself was ostensibly between the Anglican, the English, and the Danes. However, the interesting thing about that treaty is that we're not even sure who the Danes were, and it seems like Alfred might not have been sure either. And actually, the treaty kind of punts the issue occasionally and just refers to them as Guthrum's people. And here's why that's important. Looking at the record from Guthrum's moneyers, we see continental, not Scandinavian, names. And that indicates that not all of the people that Alfred calls Danes were actually Scandinavian. This treaty, which has long been talked about in terms of a treaty between two ethnicities, the English and the Danes, very well might have been an early step at creating those ethnicities. And what was really happening here was exactly what it looks like. Just political accommodation between two groups of nobles. Much like Alfred's Englishness, Danishness may have been a project by the ruling Danes, rather than a reflection of a pre-existing group of people who already defined themselves as Danish. Now what follows that treaty is Guthrum's rule. And out of that rule, we see coins appearing that bear his Christian name, Athelstan. These coins are modeled after the Carolingian style, and many of them even imitate Alfred's coins. Now, while that might seem like a minor detail, it actually suggests a massive change in how Guthrum was defining himself as a ruler. That style, in fact, minting coins in any style, really wasn't something that Viking leaders did. So by starting this practice... Guthrum was making a gesture of kingship that would have been understood by the Anglo-Saxons more than the Danes. This move to make coins, particularly in these styles, has led modern scholars like D.M. Hadley to see this as evidence that Guthrum was actively working to rule as a Christian king, and not just any Christian king, a Christian king in the Anglo-Saxon meaning. And that was precisely what Alfred had in mind. But, Political accommodation is not just a matter of assimilating or being assimilated. It can often go in both directions. Alfred was allowing Guthrum to withdraw to East Anglia and rule in peace there. They jointly signed a treaty that established their boundaries and solidified Guthrum's legitimacy over those lands. He was making concessions by doing that. But on the other side, the material record suggests that Guthrum was ruling East Anglia as a Christian king in the model of the Anglo-Saxons. Both sides had made moves to accommodate the other. Now, when Guthrum died, things changed again. Another coin was issued, but this time it didn't bear the name of Guthrum's successor. In fact, it's still debated as to who Guthrum's successor actually was. And that debate is partially due to the lack of a coin with a ruler's name on it. Instead, this new coin bears the name of Edmund the Martyr. 
the slain Anglo-Saxon king of East Anglia who had fought the Danes. Now these coins were struck in East Anglia, and also in mints in the Midlands. And those mints may have also been Danish lands, depending on how you interpret the treaty between Alfred and Guthrum. But here's the part that's really important. While Guthrum did have coins in the Carolingian and Alfredian styles, and that reflected a promotion of Christianity, these Edmund coins took that to the next level. All throughout the so-called Dane law, you had coins revering a Christian martyr who was martyred by the Danes, and they were being struck and circulating in Dane law. Given the level of control the authorities had over minting, scholars interpret this, at the very least, as tolerance of Christianity if not an outright promotion of it. Hadley even makes the argument that these coins may have been an attempt to demonstrate to the wider trading world that while the Danes now held portions of Britain, those areas were still part of the civilized, i.e. Christian, community of Europe, and they were ready for normal relations and trade. The Danes were changing the North, but the North was also clearly changing the Danes. Added to these intriguing coins, we have the story of Ragnall. He was a 10th century Viking leader and said to be a descendant of Ivor the Boneless. The record tells us that Ragnall won lands in Northumbria in battle numerous times, and he shared them out amongst his followers. Of particular interest to me, though, is the time where he fought against Adred, seized his lands, and then gave those lands to his son and to an Anglo-Saxon named Ailderman Austin. And you heard that right there were still Anglo-Saxon ildermen operating in Northumbria in the 10th century, and we also have Scandinavian warlords giving land to them. And we have no idea why. We don't know if this was a reward for service in battle, or if it was a way to placate the recently conquered. We have no idea why Ragnall did this. But it wasn't the first time this has happened, nor will it be the last time that we'll see Anglo-Saxons among the receivers of Viking loot. As you might remember, Guthrum himself seized lands and then gave some of them to the King of Mercia at one point. But this is another example of how lands taken by Scandinavians in conquest could sometimes be given to a local lord rather than to a fellow Scandinavian. Even in victory, the Danes, for reasons that we can't always see, were sometimes choosing to play nice or at least fostering alliances with the local nobility. Add to this the story of Guthred. And I know we have a lot of Guth names. Guth actually means God in Old Norse, which is probably why we see it so often. Sort of like the popularity of Athel among the Anglo-Saxons. And as an interesting side note, Guth actually means battle in Old English. And I wonder if that caused some miscommunication on occasion. Anyway, let's get to Guthred. So, you might remember how the monks of Lindisfarne had left their monastery, and they went wandering about the land, carrying the body of St. Cuthbert with them. And most of the story comes from the history of St. Cuthbert, which was written long after these events. And of course, the history of St. Cuthbert is a story about faith and miracles. And they're miracles that often include a corpse that has a surprising amount to say. So we should probably read that history as one of those sources that was generally more concerned with the author's own spiritual truth rather than a factual truth. However, even fairy tales can tell us quite a bit about the culture that tells them. And within the history of St. Cuthbert, we can actually learn quite a bit because it includes the story of Guthred. And that story includes an event that many scholars believe describes real perspectives and events 
and then they were just jazzed up a little for the liturgical audience. Here's an excerpt. Quote, Go, St. Cuthbert said, over the Tyne to the Danish army, and tell them that, if they wish to obey me, they should show you a certain boy named Guthred, son of Hardicanute, who is the slave of a certain widow. And in the early morning, you and the whole army are to give the widow the price for him. Give the price at the third hour, and at the sixth hour, lead him before the multitude, so that they may elect him king. At the ninth hour, lead him with the whole army onto the hill called Oswegaduna, and there place a gold armlet on his right arm, and thus they are all to constitute him king. Say also to him, after he has been made king, he should give me all the land between the Tyne and the Ware. Resolved as a result of this vision, the holy abbot hastened to the heathen army, and being honorably received by it, he faithfully carried out in order what he had been enjoined upon him. For he both found and redeemed the boy, and made him king by the goodwill of the whole multitude. The bishop Eardwolf brought to the army and to the hill the body of St. Cuthbert, and over it the king himself and the whole army swore peace and fidelity for as long as they lived. And they kept this oath as well. End quote. Do you see what happened there? How the Danes of Northumbria became Christian and Guthrum became king because everyone agreed to listen to the advice of a prophetic zombie. No? Okay, let's unpack it. First, some of you have already asked me why the monks decided to take Cuthbert all over creation. So let's address that first. So the monastery of Lindisfarne was politically influential before it was broken. And this long journey likely wasn't a random wandering. Instead, what they were probably doing is traveling to various properties that answered to Lindisfarne before it disbanded. And that would explain why they were bringing Cuthbert's body with them. Because displaying the saint would have been simultaneously an assertion of ecclesiastical authority, and it also would have been a bit like showing the deed to your property. It sounds a bit weird to us, but according to scholars, carrying the body of a saint and saying, take a good hard look at our corpse here, was really like showing someone the deed to your property. But here's why the wandering of the monks is important. When you look at specifically where they were going, the Lindisfarne monks weren't behaving like refugees running from Danish raiders. In fact, they tended to move towards occupied lands rather than away from them. And that's been interpreted as the monastery's efforts to protect their hold on their properties. The monks were bringing their monastic community as well as their sacred relics to their various properties as an effort to ensure that they continued to remain devout there. And critically, those areas continued to owe fealty to the monks of Lindisfarne. And when they reached Chester Street, the monks decided to elevate Guthred to the level of king in return for the right to substantial properties. But to accomplish that, they needed to forge a political alliance with the Danes, which is what they did. And thus, all those lands between the Ware and the Tyne, all of those were acquired. And then even more land was later purchased by Abbot Adred. But you might be wondering why these monks would want an alliance with the Danes. Well, monastic lands were hardly immune from plundering or even outright seizure. And this was true even in the pre-Scandinavian days. So it's entirely possible that the community was looking to strike a deal, both with the Danes and also with the future king of Northumbria. 
and that they were seeking to protect their lands from other Scandinavians or maybe even Northumbrian lords. It also seems like they might have been trying to reacquire some lost lands. So that's what they were after. And as for why Guthred and his Scandinavians would want the support of the monks of Lindisfarne, well, what this and other stories tell us is that rule in Northumbria wasn't always guaranteed and that there were likely other groups of Scandinavians vying for control. Furthermore, there were Anglo-Saxon lords operating, like the lords of Bambra, and we also have records of a King Egbert who was said to rule the Northumbrians, at the same time that Guthred was ruling in York. So power in the north was fragmented, and by being legitimized by the monks of Lindisfarne, the Danes were likely bolstering their claim. And here's another thing that scholars note about this story. The ceremony which elevated Guthred to king wasn't exclusively Christian. The ceremony did take place at a location that was connected to King Oswiu, and there was Christian symbology and vows were taken in front of the body of a saint. But it all starts with the giving of an arm ring, and that gesture is strikingly pagan. So this whole thing reeks of political horse trading. Guthred wanted legitimacy, the monks of Lindisfarne wanted their lands and authority, and to seal their bargain, they carried out a ceremony that held elements that both of them could connect to. And it seems to have worked, because we even see coins connected to Guthred appearing south of the Humber, which suggests that Guthred's authority extended quite a bit beyond merely York. So the monks had proven themselves to be fairly savvy on the political front. And this was a clear victory for them in a time of turmoil where their order could have easily disappeared. However, the trouble was that this political wrangling and deal-making, well, it was a bit unseemly for the monks of Lindisfarne to be taking part in it. They were supposed to be devoted to the worship of God. So you had a subsequent need to reframe these actions in a holier light, which is why many scholars believe that the political efforts made by the monks was retold later on as a miraculous version of Weekend of Bernie's. But this story of Guthred's ascension, whether it involved a holy zombie saint or not, is a clear example of how the Danes and even monastic communities were finding ways to work together to accomplish their political goals. The final bit of the Guthred story comes from the famed scribe Athelweird. He tells us that King Guthrith of Northumbria, who is generally believed to be the same person as Guthred, was buried at York Minster. A burial here probably indicates that he converted to Christianity, since the archbishop would be unlikely to allow his burial otherwise. And conversion to Christianity by the Danes is something that appears to have been rather common. And something else pops up in the material record from this region. We're finding sculptures that contain Scandinavian elements, but which also have overtly Christian symbols. Some of these sculptures show depictions of St. Edmund, Christ, the Crucifixion, St. Peter, and others. But alongside those depictions, we see Scandinavian imagery and decoration styles. Hadley argues that these sculptures are evidence of the continuing importance of a Christian culture of lordship and the assimilation of the Scandinavian elite. That suspicion is reinforced by the relationship between the kings of York and the archbishops. The undeniable fact when looking at the evidence out of Northumbria is that at least some of the ruling class of the Scandinavian aristocracy relied upon church support to secure their position. Much like the situation with Guthred, this support was likely the product of political expediency for both sides. 
the ecclesiastical communities were looking to preserve their lands and continue their way of life, and they needed the support of the ruling class to accomplish that. Conversely, the Scandinavians were conquerors and heavily outnumbered in their new lands. If they wanted to establish and maintain their authority, they needed the support of a legitimized institution of cultural and political power. The church was perfectly suited for this need. As rulers, the Scandinavians largely intended to maintain the same system of rule, since that was the easiest way to establish themselves. I mean, reinventing the wheel would have been a nightmare. And meanwhile, you had local lords, both within the church, but also the eldermen and the thanes and the churls and that sort of thing. And they all wanted to maintain the status quo as best as they could. And that meant that people on both sides of the cultural divide had common cause. Political accommodation wasn't just a quick solution. It was an enduring one. By allowing many institutions and practices to continue, old systems of power fed into and reinforced the new players within it. And one thing to remember here is that the Danes weren't the only power in Britain that was threatening to take over. As the Danes entrenched themselves in East Anglia and Northumbria, what was Alfred doing? As they moved into Mercia, what was Alfred doing? By the time the Treaty of Alfred and Guthrum fully matured, we were looking at all of the non-Dane-controlled Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, as well as Wales, answering to Alfred. The Anglo-Saxon power of the island was consolidating around Alfred. And it's really easy to say, well, sure, but at least he's English. But don't forget, Alfred was still working on inventing Englishness. Right now, he was just some West Saxon king that was gobbling up everything. The Northumbrians and the Danes didn't just have a common desire to keep an even keel. They also probably had a common desire to maintain their autonomy from Wessex. And this animosity isn't just theoretical. Wessex and Northumbria had been at war many times. And don't forget that Alfred recently sent his mighty general, Athelnoth, to meet with the Northumbrians. And then afterwards, they ended up at war. Northumbria had a new Scandinavian royalty, and that was one thing. But at least they were still a kingdom. On the other side of the coin, Kent had been swallowed whole by Wessex. Half of Mercia had been swallowed by Wessex. Cornwall had been swallowed by Wessex. And as for the Welsh, they were answering Alfred's call. So in this case, the more salient identity for those in the north may have been we are Northumbrians rather than we are Anglo-Saxons. The bigger enemy as perceived by the north could very likely have been the south, not the Danes. And with that in mind, having a new set of burly, battle-hardened leaders might have been a welcome change to some of the Northumbrians particularly those who stood to lose a lot if there was a hostile merger with Wessex. So, here we are, with the local lords, both ecclesiastical and secular, looking for a way to work with the Scandinavians. And the Scandinavians looking for a way to work with their new subordinates. And predictably, we have records of conversions, and we see signs of Christian symbology mixing with Scandinavian symbology, and we see coins appear that look like they are intended to establish a Christian basis of ruling for the new Scandinavian authority. But this isn't all just on the margins with coins and sculptures. We're also seeing indications that there was direct cooperation between the Scandinavian rulers and the archbishops. And funnily, those indications involve coins. 
When it comes to Northumbrian history from this period, everything involves coins. So prior to the Danish conquest, Northumbria had been suffering through decades of internecine war as it's no less than five dynasties fought for control of the kingdom. This fight weakened the kingdom so much that the Danes were easily able to take possession of it. And then none of the dynasties were sitting on the throne. Great job, guys. But the point that I'm driving at is that while all that fighting was going on, the economy of the north, which had once been so powerful, was shredded. And in the face of that, the coinage of the north was continually debased as unscrupulous people sought to line their pockets by reducing the purity of the coins in circulation. It wasn't long before Northumbria gave up on minting silver coins entirely and instead tried to mint brass coins. But those suffered the same problem, and eventually, probably upon realizing that on a raw material level their coins were pretty much worthless, Northumbria stopped minting coins entirely. That's the situation that the Danes entered into. And these Northmen were traders. They knew the importance of coinage and the impact reliable currency can have upon trade. Furthermore, many of them were nobles before they came here, and they had encountered coins with the names of all manner of nobles on their faces. And while personal coinage wasn't a Scandinavian tradition, it wasn't an alien concept to the new Danish ruling class either. And they likely knew the utility of such coins. Consequently, when the Scandinavians came into Northumbria, it wasn't long before a new silver coinage was reintroduced into the region. These coins bore Scandinavian names like Siefrid and Knut. They're people who are otherwise unknown, but they're assumed to have been kings. But here's where it gets interesting. These coins also feature Latin inscriptions, and those inscriptions were shorthanded so they could fit on a coin. Moneyers from this period tended to use sort of an abbreviation form of Latin. But if you know those abbreviations, you can actually read what they have to say. And so we have coins that say things like, the Lord God is king, and the Lord God Almighty is king. We also have coins that have excerpts from the Psalms, like, he has done marvelous things. And it isn't just phrases. These coins also feature Christian symbology, much like the East Anglian coins released by Guthrum. So we're seeing crosses appearing on the coins, among other things. And all of this is pretty surprising, considering that the coins were dated to the early period of Scandinavian occupation of Northumbria. And the creation of coins like this is out of keeping with the behavior of Scandinavian leaders from this time. So what does it mean? Well, the use of Latin abbreviations and the use of specific symbology and the fluency with Christian phrases, all of that indicates that there was a group of highly literate, ecclesiastically trained people who were behind the creation of these coins. Furthermore, the styles on some of these coins reflect Carolingian methods from the same era which suggests a degree of international awareness and knowledge of contemporary Christian styles. And that brings us back to the Archbishops of York. Archbishop Wolf Hera was serving during much of this critical time, and Hadley and others argue that with these coins, we have evidence of the Archbishop working with the Scandinavians to foster Anglo-Scandinavian relations. That the overt use of Christian phrases and images on coins Coins that proclaim Scandinavian rulers are an indication that the archbishop was working to accomplish the same sort of agreement that the monks of Lindisfarne struck with Guthrid. 
the archbishop was providing the new leadership with Christian authority. And in return, the archbishop was maintaining the status quo. And that isn't too crazy. In fact, we see it all over the place. We've been talking about it all episode. With Guthrum's coins, with Guthred's alliance with the monks of Lindisfarne, with the new Northumbrian coinage. We even see it in the sculptural evidence, where there's a deliberate blending of Scandinavian and Christian imagery. And all of this points towards local lords, both secular and ecclesiastical, doing whatever they could to maintain the status quo, including striking bargains with the Scandinavians in order to pull that off. And this is significant because it gives us evidence of something that you might have already been suspecting, that the new Danish ruling class weren't just militarily powerful. They were also politically astute. They weren't seeking to simply dominate through force. They were looking to establish and maintain their legitimacy through the cultural processes of their new kingdom. And consequently, they appear to have quickly recognized the political benefits an alliance with the church could provide. And meanwhile, the local lords were working to assimilate the Danes into the local culture as quickly as possible. And for the most part, it looks like they were having a lot of success, which is likely why we see rapid conversions to Christianity, as well as the continuation of Old English in the north, and also the survival of the previous organization of the kingdoms. Only, of course, with new aristocrats. So, here we are, at the dawn of the 10th century. The economic and urban landscape of the island is changing. The perspective people have on who they are and to whom they owe their allegiance is changing. Place names, accents, and even preferences on personal names are changing. But some things are still remarkably similar. We still have nobles doing whatever they need to do in order to maintain the status quo. We still have people who would much rather take advantage of the institutions that are already in place rather than reinvent the wheel. We still have people building alliances based upon expediency and mutual personal needs rather than on grand philosophical ideas or notions of ethnicity. In short, while the ruling class of the North had changed and while the power of Wessex had expanded, we're still dealing with the same stuff we've always dealt with. Nobles seeking their own goals through the most expedient means available to them. And in this case, it was through mutual political accommodation. And next time, we'll get back to the main story with all those political figures and their wrangling. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities in the upper right-hand corner of the thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. All right, pub quiz. You know the drill. Question one. In the late 9th and early 10th centuries, was there a single unified political body called the Dane Law? Question two. Since at least the 8th century, we've been seeing a rapid decrease in the multiple estate villages throughout Britain. What's the cause for this change? Question three. The coming of the Scandinavian raids resulted in the collapse of many of Britain's market towns. What brought them back? 
and what two key factors were involved in their return. Question four, true or false? By the 900s, burrs that were placed in militarily significant locations, but were not economically well-situated, began to be abandoned. Question five, before Worcester was transformed into a market town, what was its main focus? Question six, when Worcester was converted into a burr, who did the town have to share its income with? Question seven, in the early ninth century, where was the major trading on the Thames occurring? Was it happening in Londonwich or in Londinium? Question eight, why was Athelred's Hitha considered the best spot for a port in London Burr? Question nine, what is a Grimston hybrid? Question 10. Were there Northumbrian bishops who cooperated with the ruling Scandinavian aristocrats in Northumbria? Question 11. True or false? The Scandinavians replaced all of the local nobility in Northumbria when they took control. All right, let's see how you did. Question 1. In the late 9th and early 10th centuries, was there a single unified political body called the Dane Law? No. Question two. Since at least the 8th century, we've been seeing a rapid decrease in the multiple estate villages throughout Britain. What's the cause for this change? Land was being privatized through book land, and so the multiple estates were being split up. Question three. The coming of the Scandinavian raids resulted in the collapse of many of Britain's market towns. What brought them back? And what two key factors were involved in their return? Oddly, the Scandinavian raids themselves brought the market towns back. And the construction of the burrs, which spurred on economic development, as well as the release of accumulated wealth from the raided royal estates and monasteries, as well as the Danegelds, then spurred on trade. Question four, true or false? By the 900s, burrs that were placed in militarily significant locations, but were not economically well-situated, began to be abandoned. True, the burrs began to be far more than just military installations. Question five, before Worcester was transformed into a market town, what was its main focus? It was a bishop's town. Though, considering the length of Worcester's history, I'd also accept that it was a Roman cattle and iron settlement, or that it was part of the British Kingdom of Dabuni. I'd even accept that it was a waypoint on a Neolithic trade route. Worcester was old, but the last thing it was before it became a market town was a bishop's town. Question six. When Worcester was converted into a burr, who did the town have to share its income with? Athelred, Lord of Mercia. Question seven. In the early ninth century, where was the major trading on the Thames occurring? Was it happening in Londonwich or in Londinium? In the early ninth century, it was happening in Londonwich. Question eight. Why was Athelred's Hitha considered the best spot for a port in Londonbur? Because all the other areas on the shoreline of Londinium were basically an obstacle course of wrecked Roman quays and docks. 
Question nine, what is a Grimston hybrid? It's a place name that's a blend of Scandinavian and Anglo-Saxon elements. Question 10, were there Northumbrian bishops who cooperated with the ruling Scandinavian aristocrats in Northumbria? Yes, they were even minting coins together. Question 11, true or false? The Scandinavians replaced all of the local nobility in Northumbria when they took control. False. We have records of multiple Anglo-Saxon nobles operating within Danish-controlled Northumbria. Okay, I hope you did well, and we'll see you on the next one.